You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast raising the bar at workplaces everywhere. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective are their own and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, Teresa McQueen. Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Today, we're talking with Dr. Heidi Gardner, author, speaker, and co-founder of Gardner & Company. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Gardner about challenges of a hybrid workforce and ways to energize hybrid collaboration. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Workplace Perspective has a new website. Visit us at www.workplaceperspective.com. Check out our new look, including our featured guests and archive sections. Share us with your friends and colleagues to help us continue to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back to our listeners and welcome to Workplace, Dr. Heidi Gardner. So thank you very much. So before we get started, uh, Dr. Gardner, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Well, right now my title is Distinguished Fellow at Harvard Law School. It's a bit of a misnomer for a lot of people, or at least a a bit of a red herring in the fact that I'm not actually a lawyer. Um, And uh, I spent, let's see, about seven years on the faculty of Harvard Business School, my PhDs in organizational behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to that, I was living in London for about 11 years, where I did all my postgraduate work at the London School of Economics and London Business School. And I also worked for McKinsey. Well, that's great. We love McKinsey on this show. (laughs) They're frequent guests. We love talking to them. Um, Well, I want to hear about your, you you authored a great uh, article uh, that was about, is your hybrid team running out of steam? I love that. So we we want to talk today a little bit about energizing hybrid teams. So let's start out by talking about sort of What are some of the most common difficulties that are facing both employers and employees with regard to a hybrid work situation? There are quite a number of them, as we all know. Um, My work is on smarter collaboration. Um, So for 15 years, I've been trying to understand how to get people inside and across organizations to work across silos and to be very intentional about seeking people who are different from them, who can offer complementary perspectives when they're looking at solving tough problems or tackling major risks and so forth. And so when you think about bringing hybrid into that, it raises a number of challenges. First of all, we've got quite a few people who joined organizations and have never actually met their colleagues or their bosses face to face. And it leads to some challenges around trust. Now, when we want to get people to engage across silos to really think about smarter collaboration, trust is absolutely essential. And it's trust of two kinds. The first is competence trust. People need to believe that the other person is going to deliver high quality on time, on budget, that they have the skills and capabilities necessary to complete whatever part of the collaboration they need to do. But even if you believe somebody is a guru, they're brilliant at what they do, 
you might not trust them in an interpersonal sense. If you think they're a jerk, if you think that they steal credit for your ideas, if you know any of those other things come in the way of engaging with one, uh, with one another respectfully and productively, if you have doubts about that, you lack confidence and interpersonal trust, it's just a disaster. And so in the hybrid environment where people have not met each other face-to-face, it's harder to establish that interpersonal trust. Right? If we haven't spent time together, how do I understand your motives? What do I not know about your background that is makes it more difficult for me to give you the benefit of the doubt? Um, what do I not know about your working situation? What assumptions do I jump to when I see you know, your background on Zoom or I see you taking a break midday um, and I don't give you the credit for then making up that time late at night, right? There's lots that comes in the way um, uh, of productive working relationships in a hybrid environment and the trust is often at the heart of them. Yeah, so I do business etiquette training and it's a huge component of that. Trust. Trust is at the basis of all of our relationships, including our professional relationships. And I don't think people realize on how many levels that actually impacts. Without a doubt. I mean, we're making judgments all the time about other people. Some of them are conscious, some of them are subconscious. Um, and what we have to realize is that establishing trust is not as much about who you can trust as it is about the signals you send about your own trustworthiness. And, you know, some of it is just the classic hygiene factors. Like, do you deliver what you say you do uh, or, you know, what you promise you will um, keeping your promises and meeting expectations, communicating when you're going to have a slip up. Those are kind of, you know, self-management 101. But when it comes to other factors of interpersonal trust, they can be a lot more subtle and we might not realize the signals that we're sending. So for example, how often do we refer to my work or you know, in a professional services environment, how often do I talk about my clients? Now, I might see that as uh, a real signal that I'm sending that I take ownership in my work. I take real pride, I empathize with them, I'm part of them, they're part of me, they're mine. But what it signals to somebody else is I'm territorial, I'm defensive, I'm not letting anyone else in and I'm anti-collaborative, right? We're sending, you know, in those cases, the opposite signals of trustworthiness than what we believe we are. You know, another way to think about it is if I see somebody being a bit defensive around me, they, they don't invite me in, I've offered to collaborate with them and they haven't reciprocated, I might make an assumption about, oh, they don't believe in my competence, right? I see that they don't trust me my mind might automatically go to competence trust because as a specialist, as an expert, that's what's most valuable to me, right? So then I say, how would I become more trustworthy with this person? You know, in a hybrid environment, how can I get them to trust me? And every time we're on Zoom together, I talk about my successes. I talk about how much the customer loved the work that I did. I credentialize myself over and over so that I can convince all of these people whom I've never met that my capabilities are really superior. If I'm misdiagnosed and the reason they don't want to work with me is they, they don't have interpersonal trust. They think I'm a blowhard. They think I take undue credit for things. All of that effort I've just put into increasing my perceived trustworthiness in terms of my competence has backfired. 
now, now I've reinforced their misconceptions, perhaps that uh, I'm not easy to work with and, and that they shouldn't trust me in an interpersonal sense. Right? So there's a real risk there. And all of the things I'm talking about right now have a chance of being misperceived even more in a hybrid environment where we're not taking the time, we don't have the opportunity to engage with one another in the kind of offline sense where we get a better perception of who's underneath that Zoom persona. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In the research you've done on this topic, um, what surprised you the most? What surprised me the most in the research that we've done around hybrid working is how big of a gap there is between leaders, you know, formal leaders, and people who are working this way. I, I, and some of these misperceptions are, again, in the trust space, how hard people are actually working when they're working, say, from home. Um, we know that people who are working from home believe that they're pouring heart and soul into this, that yes, they might take 10 minutes during the day to unload the dishwasher or take the dog for a walk, but they're putting in an extra 30 minutes because their computer is always there in the kitchen, right? And so even when they're cooking, they're, you know, reading emails or something or, or you know, tuning into a, to a, to a, to a town hall, right? Um, and so people understand how hard they're working and it's not picked up on by leaders who lack trust in them. And too often, this is a, this is a leader problem in that what they don't have is a clear sense of objectives for people. They don't know how to measure the value that people are adding. So what they look at instead is the inputs, right? And they're looking at which times of day people are uh, engaging. They're looking at nonsense uh, inputs like keystrokes. Um, but what they're not looking at is outcomes. Did they deliver great work? Did they delight the customer? Did they come up with an innovative way of working that actually saves money? If leaders were more focused on the outcomes than on the process that people use to get there, I think hybrid working would be a lot more productive and constructive. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a big boat to shift because for so many years, that's been the, and for certain types of jobs, that's been the, the barometer. Time. Yeah. Time is it's all about time and, and butts in seats and all that sort of stuff. And this idea that you want me to do, you want me to look at what? How are we going to do that? What does that yeah. mean? <laughs> but I mean, that's the essence of leadership, right? If you call yourself a leader and you can't define what it is that each of your employees are meant to be delivering, I really question whether you deserve the title. And I know that sounds harsh, but at the same time, that's the essence of leadership is to be able to set goals and hold people accountable. And if you don't know what you're holding them accountable for, ultimately, that's hugely problematic. Um, and recognizing that there are many paths to get to an outcome is critical, right? For some people working at home is wildly productive because of the way that they tend to think, right? You know, we measure this, we have a psychometric tool called the Smart Collaboration Accelerator. And one of the seven dimensions that it measures is people's natural tendency to engage in complex thinking and ideation uh, individually or as a group. And what we know is this is a natural 
almost a personality characteristic for people. For those who really need to engage on their own with complex problems before they uh, reveal their thinking or are, you know, in their minds poisoned by other people's thinking, working at home has enormous benefits. And so why would we not create an environment where those people can play to their strengths? So that's, you know, for that kind of person, hybrid is ideal because they get, ideally, they are thinking very strategically about what kind of work they're doing in which environment. The deep work they need to do on their own, they're going to do when they're at home, when they hopefully have fewer distractions, et cetera. Um, and they're going to go to the office when they need to engage with their colleagues. That said, what I just mentioned could be the exact opposite for somebody with a different home life, right? Mm -hmm. For you know, for somebody that lives, that shares an apartment with a whole bunch of other people, for somebody who has, you know, a number of kids or family members or whomever, you know, living in the same household, they might escape to the office to get the individual time, to get the quiet time, right? But again, letting people make decisions about where they're going to be most productive is ideal and it requires trust. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we'll talk more with Dr. Gardner on practical ways to sort of energize that hybrid collaboration. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Take a step toward bringing our country and community together. Start a meaningful conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. If you enjoy today's show, do this. Share us. Like us. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. It sure means a lot to us, and it ensures that more people tune in and raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Dr. Heidi Gardner about the challenges of a hybrid workforce and ways to energize hybrid collaboration. So in the article that I mentioned uh, earlier, your hybrid team is losing steam or is your hybrid team losing steam? You talked about, I think, three different sort of paths uh, that successful energizing leaders can take to sort of engender this positive energy when it comes to hybrid collaboration. So let's get practical. Let's talk about that. Absolutely. So one of those paths that people can take as a leader is to think about channeling the energy of the group. So let me take a step back. Before diving in here, it's up to any leader. If they feel like their hybrid team is not fully engaged, if you feel like you know we're, we're losing something here, we're not living up to our potential, you've got to figure out why not and diagnose it properly before digging into any of these solutions. But one of the barriers you might uncover is that kind of in aggregate across the team, there's lots of energy, but collectively it feels dissipated because everyone is running in so many directions at once that your job as a leader is to channel that energy and get people focused on a, a clear set of shared objectives, right? So as a leader then who has a, a, a number of people working in a hybrid way, figuring out how do you tap into each person's strengths and get them to understand the unique contributions that they have to make in order for the group to be successful. That creates some extra energy in the group because you're allowing people to play to their strengths. 
And, you know, let me pause there for a second. When I say allowing people, it sounds like perhaps an act of altruism. This is not a soft skill. It's not being nice to people to create space for them to play to their strengths. It's being hard nosed about how are we going to get the best out of every single person so that as a team, we can accomplish more together than any of us could do on our own. And being able to create that space where people play to their strengths, letting them know and letting other people know how they all fit together is absolutely essential. And that channeling action where you're bringing people's strengths together and zeroed in laser focused on a collective goal is one of the ways to help a team get the energy that they need focused on the right outcomes. That's great. That's great. I love that idea that because I do think that some people get a little caught up in the softer skills side of that um, and the, you know, and accountability gets lost in that sometimes. I think because kind of what Absolutely. a little bit of what you're talking about is accountability, accountability from a leadership perspective um, and on the employee side, holding people to that standard, whatever that standard might be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other thing to think about here is uh, what you just said. When when we talk about smarter collaboration, we devoted an entire chapter in our new book, chapter one, to the business case for collaboration and what we can demonstrate empirically. You know, we've got millions of data records stretching back well over a decade from hundreds of organizations around the globe, organizations of every size and description you can imagine. And what we can demonstrate through you know, data and science and analytics is that when people engage in this way across silos, when they're able to tap into complementary skill sets and perspectives, they drive higher revenues and profits, right? It, it's money in the bank. Um, and we know that that's true um, from, again, all kinds of research that we've done. And we also show that it's not just making money in the short term, the quality of that, that revenue over time is more sustainable. So when people engage this way, when they're serving their customers by tapping into a whole variety of different perspectives in the organization, from R&D to sales to operations, for example, they're able to create a more holistic solution, usually at a lower cost, and deliver that more effectively for their customers, which generates enormous amounts of customer loyalty. And so revenues and profits go up, customer loyalty goes up, risk goes down. Right? Because you have more eyes on any given situation, looking at you know things that could blow up, looking at it from multiple perspectives, that's incredibly valuable. So if people are thinking, oh, collaboration, it's a soft skill, we'll get around to it when our real work is done, they're totally missing the boat. Collaboration, smarter collaboration, this hyper-intentional way of working is the only way to do the most complex, high-value work in any organization. I love it. Okay. So channeling is one way. Yes, absolutely. So, so channeling energy is one way, a different way to um, think about this is generating energy, right? So you might be leading a team in an organization that actually is flat, right? And people are just depleted either because of, you know, high workloads, because of stress, it might be because of External factors like, you know, what's happening in geopolitics these days is just draining people. If that's the case, and it's genuinely that people overall are lacking energy, it's not that it's 
dissipated because they're working on too many things at once. But if, if they're lacking energy, then what you need to be thinking about as a leader is what is what is going to generate this kind of, um, of positivity, the sense of purpose. What we recommend is that leaders co-create a sense of meaning rather than sitting back and thinking, you know, oh, this is what would really be a great vision for our group and imposing that on the group, co-create it, right? Um, adopt that bigger picture of how the group is helping clients or helping patients or other stakeholders and have a session where people lean into figuring out what their role is in generating that kind of value. People, you know, research again and again shows that when people believe they're contributing to something meaningful, they're much more energized. You also have to make sure that you're looking at people uh, for what they can contribute. It, there's real dignity in this, uh, elevating their self-worth, not just thinking them as a, a human resource. I really hate that term because it makes people seem like they are pawns on a chessboard that can just be moved around. And as long as you have enough resource, you're good. These are humans we're talking about and making sure we're tapping into who they are as humans creates more energy because they are seen and valued and respected. And then last thing I would say when you're trying to create energy in a group is that it sounds obvious once you say it out loud, but my colleague at Harvard Business School, Teresa Mabale, spent ages working on this research that showed that momentum is hugely energizing. Rather than giving somebody this massive long-term goal and saying, go climb that mountain, what generates real energy for people is having shorter term wins that are very concrete and tangible. So as a leader, how do you take that big, hairy, audacious goal that everyone talks about and break it down into manageable pieces so that you can start to chalk up some wins. You can talk about the successes that you're having. You can get that momentum going. And then your job as a leader, you know, it's it's a law of physics, right? You know, an object in motion tends to stay in motion. So you have to get the motion kicked off and sustain it rather than that kind of stop start um, that, you know, when you allow people to lose steam and the goal seems so far away that it's hard to get started again. Right. So I'd really encourage leaders, how do you think about creating energy where it, you really need to? You know, if that's your diagnosis and it's real, your job to create energy, it's more possible than what you might think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially on long term projects. There's absolutely, a, you know, there's such a leveling off period where it does feel like it stops. I don't know that that's ever the intention, but at some point. Everyone just kind of slows down and it's really hard to get kicked back up, kick, kick it back up again. Absolutely. You know, and anthropologists will tell us that culture is made of stories. So I'd ask people, what stories do you tell? And, and if you're, you're, you're constantly repeating stories about the thing that didn't work and the customer that got away and, and how hard it is and the hybrid team that isn't working, well, guess what? That becomes your culture. Um, and I'm not trying to be Pollyanna here, but we need to generate real stories of actual successes. It's the other reason why you want to have those interim goals where people have the sense of progress. You can tell stories about specific people who accomplished really concrete things, and that heightens the momentum and makes it much more likely to carry on. 
Yeah. The, the last thing, just, just to round out this conversation, right? We talked about channeling energy where it's dissipated. We talked about generating energy where it's lacking. The third action that leaders can take is really multiplying energy, right? So everyone's got some energy, but collectively, you don't have as much as you could. And this is really at the heart of smarter collaboration. It's identifying and valuing those differences in a group and making it really clear to everyone how these different pieces collectively are way more than the sum of the parts. Right? And that is um, really helpful when you get people to reveal their own idiosyncrasies. You know, it requires them being vulnerable. But by speaking about various aspects of their personality, their expertise, their life experiences, leaders can get them to think and share about these multidimensional profiles. It's a really fun and exciting exercise for people to engage in. So, you know, you could say, you know, talk to me about your life and who you really are. Or you can ask these kinds of questions to people that draw out aspects of their being that then you can say, wow, like, how could we take that and combine it with, you know, kind of this other spice mix we've got to, to generate a recipe that would be entirely impossible if you were missing those ingredients. Right? And people believe then uh, and recognize not only how they can contribute, but they become much more curious about their teammates. Wow, I had no idea you lived in that country. I had no idea that's where you grew up. I had no idea you studied this thing. I, and when we spark that kind of curiosity, it gives us a mindset of looking at the world in ways where we're wondering, wow, I wonder where Teresa's background in X would really make a difference. Right? And when we're constantly inquiring like that, it makes it entirely more likely that we're going to find opportunities to really play to each other's unique strengths and characteristics. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really does. We're doing a very large training in my company. And in the training sessions, we're asking people, you know, introduce yourself and because we're, we're a hybrid workforce and you know, introduce yourself, tell us something really unique about you. And when you go around the room and you listen to, you know, and you watch colleagues go, no idea that you did that or, or, you know, had that experience or whatever. Yeah. And it really does change your, it opens up your mind a little bit more 100%. about who this person is. A hundred percent. I mean, I just had this experience a, a couple days back. We were deliberately kind of exploring some of these aspects. And I mentioned that I had lived in both Japan and South Africa, right? And, you know, incredibly different cultures. But the, the point I was making is that I'm a total fish out of water, right? And I like being a fish out of water. I like being the odd person out because it gives me a little bit of um, room to be eccentric. You know, people just chalk it up to like, oh, that crazy person over here, she's so different Ooh. from us. Well, my craziness might have nothing to do with my nationality or the passport that I hold and has everything to do with how I think about the world, but it gives me the opportunity to be different um, and kind of the license to be a bit eccentric. And I love that. Um, it allows me to push these things differently. And when we started talking about you know, what it's like to be such a complete outsider in cultures where, you know, we're just parachuting in and know that we're not going to spend the rest of our life there. What, what do we do differently? How do we adapt? And, uh, and, and it helped create the space in that um, team setting where people looked at my kind of outside in 
ness and uh, and said, oh, wait, you know, you're used to doing that kind of thing. You think it's sort of normal. Maybe we can embrace it. That's great. That's great. I love that. Well, as we wrap up today's show, can you give us your thoughts for the future or words of wisdom when it comes to this topic? I think that smarter collaboration is going to become increasingly important. If we look at this volatile world that we are living in, it is going to take every ounce of our curiosity and patience to embrace people who see this world differently from us. And those of us who are making the effort, God knows none of us are going to be perfect all the time. But I think if we embrace those kinds of differences, if we really challenge ourselves to become less defensive when we hear someone really um, you know, offering a, a very, very different viewpoint, if we ask ourselves, why do they see the situation so differently from me? It creates that sense of curiosity. It probably brings the heart rate down a little bit because we're moving from a, an amygdala reaction to a prefrontal cortex where we're not just reacting to something in you know, fight or flight mode, but we're, we're examining it um, and being very thoughtful about it. And that kind of a process can allow us to engage more constructively across what is a very, very divided and polarized world that we're living in. And I, I would hope that this idea of smarter collaboration prompts people to think about who it is that I don't embrace in my collaborations right now that might make me better at what I do. I love it. It's a wonderful place to start. It's a wonderful place to start. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your thoughts and your expertise with all of our listeners. We really appreciate it. My pleasure indeed. Thanks for having me. You can learn more about Dr. Gardner by visiting gardnerandco.com. That's G-A-R-D-N-E-R-A-N-D-C-O.com. You can also connect with Dr. Gardner via our website at workplaceperspective.com. I want to also thank our listeners, my radio angels, James and the Nave at Night, and Workplace Perspective's team extraordinaire, our engineer producer, Paul Roberts, our associate producer, Melissa DeLacy, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Thank you all for joining us on Workplace Perspective. And until next time, keep raising the bar.